Well, uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Chris. Um, I'm a pastoral apprentice here at the Trails, and uh, really grateful that I get to uh, preach Psalm 46 today. And now you may be wondering, we've been you know, walking through the Psalms a bit, why are we ending our time in the Psalms in Psalm 46? And the answer to that is because we are. <laughs> so we're just going to be preaching Psalm 46 today. Uh, I'm going to pray for uh, our time as we dive into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you um, recognizing that um, we can read and we can seek to understand, but unless your Spirit is working to apply what is in your Word, um, our hearts don't move, our lives stay the same. And so, Father, I ask that you would, um, you would be with me, empowering what I say, because without your, your power, it is just words that I speak. Lord, in your word are the words of life, and I pray that it would produce life in all of our hearts, more life, abundant life, greater joy in the gospel, greater joy in you, knowing that you are a good father who is indeed our refuge and our strength. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we now close our time in the Psalms, this is our last week this summer in the Psalms, not our last week in the Psalms forever, because as you know, got 12 years of summers of the Psalms, so strap in for that. It is important, though, that as we close this, we need to remember that there is an entrance, an entryway to the Psalms that we must go through. Now, Pastor Aaron taught us earlier this summer that Psalms 1 and 2 provide us with the introduction to the entire Psalter. So Psalms 1 and 2 are the Psalms introduction, and they're an entryway into the book of Psalms. So as we are walking down this path of life, Psalm 1 presents us with two ways we can walk down. We can either walk down the way of the wicked, which the psalm warns is ultimately a waste and ends in destruction, or we can walk down the way of the righteous, leading to flourishing and stability. But before we can continue walking down this way of the righteous, we actually immediately come up to a gate. Here we see that Psalm 2 tells the reader of the Psalms that the entry point for walking down this way of the righteous is recognition and submission to the Lord's anointed. Therefore, to enter the Psalter, to learn the way of the righteous, we must enter by the wicked gate that is the Lord's anointed king. And this two-part introduction casts a vision for the entire book. As Bible teacher Bruce Waltke explains, Psalm 1 tells us for whom the Psalter is intended, the righteous, and Psalm 2 tells us about whom it speaks, the king. Now Psalm 1 provides us with the book's purpose to instruct us in the law of the Lord. But Psalm 2 tells us that its message is about the Lord's reign and that through his anointed king. Purpose and message. But here's the weird thing about that. Now, when Pastor Aaron explained to us uh, about this introduction of the Psalms, he gave us this odd, this interesting uniqueness about the Psalms that the Psalms don't really provide us with any like, new information or new revelation about God. Instead, the Psalms primarily are reflections and meditations 
on how God has already revealed himself, how he has already revealed his character, and it reflects upon his past actions in creation. Now certainly the Psalms fill out in greater detail things concerning God and his purposes in the world, but not with the main purpose in mind to simply explain more facts about God. But if that is true, how then is the purpose of the Psalms to instruct us in the law of the Lord and to tell us of his anointed? Well, I'm glad you asked everybody. This is why when we come to the Psalms, we must also remember its function. It has a purpose, it has its message, but it also has a function. It was a very functional, well-used book in the life of the nation of Israel. The book of Psalms was the royal hymn book of Israel. The royal hymn book of Israel. But we need to discuss this a bit more in order to understand just how truly significant that is. The Psalms were written to be sung. They were written to be sung, brothers and sisters. They were intended for the musical worship of the nation of Israel. We need to recognize just how massive of a point that is. We take it for granted that, that God created us and commanded us to sing. God in his providence has told the world to sing his praises. Why? Why has he done that? Why has he created us with this capacity to sing and make melodies and compose music? Why? Have you ever considered that? God has revealed himself through the medium of the written word, but he has also commanded us to worship him by singing because something happens in us in our hearts and minds, when we engage in the act of music making. It engages our hearts and our affections in a way that merely reading something doesn't. We can read the truth and understand it, but singing is the means God has ordained to get that truth from here to here. Singing is a God-ordained, God-created mechanism created to help the truth of Scripture make the very long journey from our heads to our hearts. That is beautiful. And it's massive to consider that that is how God has designed us. God has created us to sing to him and to sing his praises. Have you ever considered how significant it is also that God has chosen to reveal himself through the written word? And not only that, have you ever considered and been amazed at the fact that God has done so through so many genres and kinds of writing? Have you ever asked yourself, why didn't God just drop a completed book from the heavens titled, The Facts Everybody Needs to Know About Me? That's very significant. Why didn't he do that? God didn't reveal himself by listing facts about himself. I know some of us might wish that the Bible was just a collection of propositional truth claims, but it's not. The majority of the Bible is made up of stories 
and poetry. Why? Because God created us in such a way that stories and poetry communicate the truth more effectively and to get that truth from here to here. So if you think that the Bible is just a book of facts to be learned, of information to be categorized, you know what you're going to get out of the book of Psalms? Not nearly as much as you could. Because the Psalms are here to instruct us by way of making us feel things. The Psalms are here to instruct us by making us feel things. Now, one famous song, songwriter described this effect perfectly. He summarized it this way. Words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling. A song makes you feel a thought. Words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling. A song makes you feel a thought. Meaning that the music combined with the lyrics of a song helps communicate the emotional response we should have to the ideas that are being sung. This is what the Psalms are here to do, brothers and sisters. We cannot appreciate them. We cannot understand them. Unless we understand that this is what they are here to do. To engage your affections, your emotions, and make you not just understand the truth, but feel and treasure and love that truth. And if we do not understand this, we will not be able to understand how the Psalms ought to function in the life of God's people, in our lives. To me, this is the greatest challenge in preaching the Psalms. And yes, while of course all of God's word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, I think the Psalms do it best when we sing them. And two, when we read them, it can be a challenge, especially because most of us, most of us don't really like poetry very much. I mean, I do. I like poetry, but I'm a weirdo. I know a few of you are also weirdos who like poetry. Uh, maybe you hated studying Shakespeare in high school. I loved Shakespeare, but again, I'm a weirdo. But I can't really blame you because Shakespeare wrote plays. They're meant not just to be read, but they're meant to be acted. And in the same way, while we should and must read and meditate and memorize the Psalms, they're meant to be sung because something different happens it's one thing to read, O oh Lord, our Lord, oh, how awesome are your ways. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And another thing to sing, O oh Lord, our Lord, oh, how awesome are your ways. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Nevertheless, even in the exposition of the Psalms, we pray that by the Spirit, God will move his truth from our heads to our hearts. So now as we come to our text for today, we must do so with this context of the function of the Psalms in mind. The Psalms were the royal hymnbook of Israel, and by virtue of our submission to the Lord's anointed king, Jesus Christ, it is ours as well. And from this, we read, and we study, and we meditate and sing today. So let's read Psalm 46 together. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. 
God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. I just love this psalm. Gets me absolutely stoked. But before we dive into the body of the psalm itself, we must we need to pause first at the, what is called the superscription just before verse 1. Remember, these superscripts are part of the inspired text and are for our edification and understanding. So here we read to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. So the word Alamoth is another one of those words that we do not know precisely what it means, another either musical or liturgical term. Now, while we do not know what the precise meanings of these words, related to this functionality, I, I, I love that we have these words because it actually demonstrates that the book of Psalms is a functional book. These words are examples and evidence of the psalm's use as the hymn book of the nation of Israel. The word Alamoth, whatever it means exactly, did actually inform the worship of the people. But here we also learn about the authorship of this psalm, that it is attributed to the sons of Korah. So it is attributed not to one person, but actually to a group of people. So who are these sons of Korah? Well, we learn from the book of First Chronicles that the Korahites were a clan of the Levites charged with different aspects of temple worship. So they were a division of the priesthood. And 12 psalms are credited to have been written by these priestly descendants of Korah. First Chronicles 6.33 tells us that the sons of Korah were one of the groups organized by David for music in the temple. Now, because of the breadth of their existence... The range of these psalms could have been written any time between David's reign and the time after the exile. So who was this Korah from whom this Levitical clan gets its name? Well, some of you students of Scripture might recall an infamous man by the name of Korah from Numbers 16. This Korah was the leader of an attempted rebellion against Moses' leadership. This Levite Korah and a few other hundred men got tired of Moses during the many years of the wilderness wanderings. Now, this chapter is one of the most underrated dramatic texts of Scripture. There is so much vivid action in this story. Moses tells Korah and his men to come another day and see whom God will choose to lead his people. And in spectacular fashion, God made his decision clear as day 
by causing the ground to open up and it swallowed up Korah and all his men and they were delivered alive to Sheol. Rough way to go. (laughs) Evidently, some of Korah's sons were still alive and carried on the name of their foolish forefather. And eventually, these Levites, these descendants of Korah, wrote 12 of the Psalms. However, it is interesting to note that all of the Korahite Psalms are clumped together in two places, 42 through 49 and 84 through 88, except for 86. So the Psalms of the Korahites were also thematically organized together. And the section of the Psalms we are in today has sometimes been called the Songs of Zion, and Zion being a name that corresponds with Jerusalem. Why is that? Well, Psalms 42 through 49 emphasize the theme of God's presence in Jerusalem and by extension, his place of rule over all the earth. Mentioning the house of God in 42, dwelling on his holy hill in 43, God's established throne in 45. Here in 46, the city of God is mentioned. The main theme of Psalm 47 is God sitting on his throne, ruling over all the earth. And Psalm 48 is most explicit in extolling God's rule from Mount Zion. This is why this group of psalms has been referred to as the Songs of Zion. Now, although we cannot assert the direct intention of the sons of Korah, it is important to note the significance of this considering the authorship. The descendants of the man who rebelled against God's authority wrote primarily about the Lord's rule over all the earth and and his power to assert and defend his authority from Jerusalem. What do you think? I think they learned the lesson from old grandpappy Korah. And it is this theme of God's rule over all the earth and his decisive action to defend his people. That is exactly what the theme that we see here in Psalm 46. And we see this right from the jump. The psalm begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The psalm begins with a statement of faith, an affirmation of God's character. And we see this reiterated elsewhere. Now let's briefly look at this structure, how this psalm is organized. Now it is broken up into three verses or strophes as they are called. As we, see, we, as we can see them divided by this word selah at the end of each strophe or section. There is also a refrain in this psalm, a repeated line in verses 7 and 11. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. So this refrain or chorus reiterates and reinforces the theme and main idea of the psalm that God decisively defends and protects his covenant people. And these selahs clue us in to how the whole psalm is organized as each section or strophe makes a point as well. Now, The word selah, we have not yet really talked about. We've seen it many times in the first nine psalms. But it is another example of the the functional nature of the book of the psalms. As selah is another musical or liturgical term. Again, the meaning and use of the word selah is not known, and there are different views of what it could be, different ideas. And now what I'm about to say is my view, my opinion as far as I have studied of what Selah means, so don't start any fights with me or anyone else if you disagree, I believe that Selah has both a musical and liturgical, that is a worshipful function. Now some have summarized its function as pause and reflect. Pause and reflect. 
So the intended purpose might be that as the song was sung, Selah was used to indicate a musical interlude, so as to give the people singing or listening a brief moment to pause and reflect on what was just sung. I think this is beautiful and an important thing to consider when we worship together in song today. Our songs today also have musical interludes where the instruments play. They play on as we wait to sing the next part of the song. But here's the thing, folks. That five to 20 second interlude isn't there for you to just stand there and wait to sing again. And it isn't there for you to just stand there and appreciate how talented the musicians are. Remember that when we sing together, that the act of worship isn't the singing and playing in and of themselves. The act of worship is our singing in conjunction with our minds attributing to the Lord the praise due his name and our hearts treasuring the truths we are singing. That's what makes it worship. Anyone can just sing a song or play an instrument. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God cares far more about what's going on in here than what you sound like. So I believe that Selah is an important reminder for us that when we are worshiping in song, that our hearts ought to be engaged and our minds actually considering the words that we are singing. Don't be unaware of the words you are singing. Seriously, consider them. Think on them. Be aware. Be engaged, not just musically, but also worshipfully. So when there is a brief musical interlude, remember that that isn't just a few seconds for you to tune out and just listen to the music. Spend those moments worshiping by meditating upon the words you just sang. Consider their implications for your life. Spend a few seconds praying. Ask God that he would help you to love and obey the words you are singing. Pray that those around you would grow in their love of Christ and that the Spirit would drive these truths deep into our hearts. Pause and reflect. So here, in Psalm 46, the point of reflection and meditation is the reality that God is the fortress of his people and what that truth means for us. So again, we see the psalm begins establishing the point on the outset that God is our refuge and strength. He is our place of protection, our safe haven amidst the many troubles in the world. And he is very present in his help for us. The phrase already sets up the other theme of God, dwelling with his people. God is not far away in some far off land that he must come a great distance to come help us. No, he is a very present present help in trouble. John Calvin, commenting on this, wrote, God comes seasonably to our aid and is never wanting in time of need, as often as any afflictions press upon his people. And so what is the result of this? We see this in verse 2. Therefore, massive word right here, therefore we will not fear. This is the result. The reality of God's presence with us and his protection of his people gives us the power to stand against fear and to trust in God even in the midst of this tumultuous world. And the circumstances matter a lot here, folks, because other people aren't really all that impressed with your fearlessness or your God when you're, fearlessness, when you're fearless when things are peachy keen. God gets greater glory when he proves your confidence in him when things are at their craziest and their worst. And it is in those times of suffering 
and pain that he proves to you again that he is indeed a very present help in trouble. I mean, the imagery here, guys, is just cataclysmic. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Good night. We're talking about worldwide catastrophe. But remember, remember, this is poetry. This is figurative language. The language is meant to be hyperbolic and exaggeration to describe the kinds of perils God's people will face. But I love what the sons of Korah do here. Note that these aren't ifs. We have four those. We will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The Korahites present these cataclysmic perils as things that are just to be expected? It's not if, it's when. These kinds of things are just characteristic of life in this tumultuous world. So next time a mountain collapses into the sea, just expect it. But likewise, fearlessness in the midst of tumult is what should be characteristic of God's people. Now here's the problem with texts like this. The problem is that we often read these kinds of verses and just assume they are speaking to just about general problems that we experience in our own lives, and we move on. And while it is true that God is a refuge and that you can be fearless despite any crazy life circumstance, that doesn't mean that these verses are just referring to that fact generally. This is the danger when we, encou- we encounter when we approach Scripture with a mindset that just looks for how it can be directly applied to our life circumstances. Yes, we ought to seek to apply Scripture to our lives. But first, we must study and understand what the author is actually intending to communicate first. If we fail to do so, we will actually miss out on the depth of God's Word. we actually miss out on that depth and of what God's word is actually trying to teach us. So again, while it is true that since we have confidence in the Lord, despite landscape-changing and world-altering catastrophe, we can also trust and not fear in the daily ongoing struggles of life. While that is true, there is something more specific here that the psalmist is trying to teach us. And I really want to stress this point here. There is danger, real danger, in just coming to Scripture with a mindset that just looks for immediate solutions to our problems or to address our felt needs. This is the way that people read their Bibles more than anything else. It is dangerous to make a habit of opening our Bibles and immediately jumping from biblical text directly to our own lives today. This is why other Bible teachers have rightly said that the long way around is the only way forward. We cannot just jump from text to today. We have to study the biblical text in order to understand what the original author intends to communicate to his original audience. Then we see how the text connects to the gospel. And then, and only then, can we seek to apply the passage into our lives today. You see, if we just come to Scripture to only address our problems and our felt needs, 
we will just never read some parts of Scripture. Jen Wilkin, author of Women of the Word, great book, highly recommend, actually has a name for this kind of Bible reading that seeks to only address our felt needs. She calls it the Xanax approach to Scripture. The Xanax approach is used when people just want to medicate their own feelings with the Bible. And so people who use the Xanax approach collect different Bible verse pills in order to medicate different kinds of spiritual or emotional elements. This is not a comment on the use of medication, by the way. If you're feeling anxious, just write Philippians 4.6 on a note card and repeat it that these verses are just like an incantation, magic words, and you're asking God to give you comfort from that verse. Or if you're feeling exhausted, just use the magic words, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But what is this Xanax approach to scripture actually robbing you from? First, it treats Bible verses like pills or magic spells that you can either magically fix our problems or make our negative emotions suddenly vanish. Next, it just divorces these verses from their context so that you don't even know if you're interpreting or using these verses appropriately. Because Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, isn't about rest when you're physically tired. But it's about finding rest for your soul, not your body. Lastly, the Xanax approach removes the necessity of trying to understand what those verses are actually trying to teach us. It robs you from the hard work of seeking to understand and apply the truths of the Bible into our lives. And it is there that in, in that hard work, in that hard work of studying and counseling, that the power of Scripture actually becomes manifest in our lives. As Jen Wilkin rightfully reminds us, there are plenty of passages in the Bible that don't deliver an immediate dose of emotional satisfaction to us, but they serve a very important formative purpose for us. When we read the Bible with the Xanax approach, we end up with spot knowledge of the Bible that is ultimately unhelpful. We have picked only those passages that yield something to us immediately, and you're going to stick to the parts of the Bible that give you what you think you need, rather than asking God to minister to you through his word on his terms. So next time you're wrestling with anxiety, maybe even today, don't just go to Philippians 4, 6 because it says don't be anxious and it's just going to make your anxiety disappear. Or with our text today, don't just go to Psalm 46 because it says God is our refuge and strength and we will not fear that the earth gives way. Go to these texts and then do the hard work of understanding them and drilling deep down into your heart, into the root of your anxiety, understanding why you are afraid and what you are actually fearing. Because remember, fear is actually the root of anxiety. Anxiety is the expression of our fear. They are connected. And seek to understand how they are connected. Do the hard work, not just alone, not just alone, but with one another what lies you might be believing about God and what he has or hasn't done for you. And then identify the truths that you need to understand in order to combat and replace those lies. Now, in saying all this, don't think that I'm saying that Psalm 46 isn't, 46 isn't a text you can turn to when you are afraid or wrestling with anxiety. You absolutely can turn to it. It certainly is an amazing text to turn to. 
but be aware of how you are using Scripture when you turn to it. Don't just think this text or others like it are there to address our felt needs and that alone. As I said before, while it is true that the Bible does address our needs, we cannot forget that there is something more and even something more specific that the psalmist here is desiring for us to learn. So here, the first section ends with mountains crashing into the surging sea. Images of world-shaping calamity. And now verse 4, what do we see? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The imagery of two different bodies of water is a direct point of contrast. Where before we had surging seas, here we have a gladdening river in the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The image is then explained in verse 5. God is in the midst of her. The river here is symbolizing the Lord's life-giving presence dwelling in Jerusalem. And what is the result of God's presence with his people? Two things. One, she shall not be moved. The city is steady and stable because God is there with her. Two, God will help her when the morning dawns. God's presence also means that he is present and able to help his people. Now this is interesting because there are actually, these are actually somewhat conflicting ideas at first glance. Didn't we just say that God's presence means safety and stability? If so, then why would God's people need help or deliverance? Well, that might appear to us to be contradictory or conflicting because we are given to the assumption that the safety and stability we have because of God's presence means that we will be free from hardship or peril. No. God's presence means that you are stable and secure even in the midst of suffering, not to completely remove you from ever experiencing it. And it is in that suffering that he teaches you about himself. This help that Israel is expecting here in verse 5 gives preview of what kind of dire straits they are in. They need God to act. They need his help when the morning dawns. And even this image of the morning dawn is used to refer to other times of deliverance in Israel's history, as the dawn is associated with last-second, buzzer-beater, 11th-hour acts of God to deliver his people. And we see this in no place better than in Exodus at the crossing of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies are bearing down on Israel. They think all hope is lost. They are doomed. And what happens? Exodus 14, 27. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Sure, God could have not let Pharaoh and his armies pursue Israel after they left Egypt. He could have still let them cross the Red Sea to demonstrate his power to them. He could have stopped Pharaoh's armies before they reached the shoreline. But no. God wants to demonstrate to his people the kind of God he is by demonstrating to them the kind of deliverance he can accomplish for them. Not just any victory, but the biggest, grandest possible route of a victory that can be won. And now as we look at at verse 6, we see the kind of tumultuous circumstance Israel required deliverance from. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. 
And this is a very important verse in understanding the author's intent for this psalm. The language of the verse draws out the connections between verses 2 and 3 and here in verse 6. Pay attention here, folks. Now, the word translated as rage is the same Hebrew word used in verse 3 where the waters roar. It's the same word. And again, the word translated as totter in verse 6 is the same Hebrew word for moved in verse 2. So the mountains are these tottering kingdoms. And the waters of the sea in verse 3, they are the raging nations. So we see that verses 2 and 3 are not just generic metaphors about the challenging life circumstances we could experience. They are specific metaphors corresponding to other nations warring against God's people Israel. But there is still another connection to be made, as that same word for moved in verse 2 and totter in verse 6 is also used in verse 5, that the city of God shall not be moved. This heightens the point of contrast that although the kingdoms are tottering, they're falling to pieces, the city of God is not moved at all. She is strapped in, rock steady. Jerusalem stands secured amidst these warring nations. And why are they secure and fearless in the midst of these warring nations? Because at the mere utterance of the Lord's voice, the earth melts. Good night, people. We had cataclysmic imagery before, mountains crumbling, tidal waves crashing. Now the earth is just outright melting. But what is the clarion call heard in the midst of the chaos? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is the title Yahweh Sabaoth. The word host refers to God as the commander of armies, the one who has legions of angels at his beck and call. So when you hear the word Sabaoth in a mighty fortress or another hymn, you'll know what it's referring to. And the psalmist also refers to God here as the God of Jacob. Jacob is one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jacob was given, he was the one given the name Israel by God to become the namesake for the nation. So this is another way of referring to God as the God of the nation of Israel, but also calling back to the history of Israel in the patriarchs. And again, we see here the theme of the psalm that God is a fortress, a stronghold for his people. They are protected and out of reach of the nations. There is something specific here about these raging nations. What does it call to mind? What specifically in the psalms might this refer to? Well, it calls back to the beginning, back to the wicked gate, as it were. Psalm 2, which begins with the raging nations. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We must remember that this is the theological and historical setting or context of the rest of the book of Psalms. The way of the righteous goes through the gate that is submission to the Lord's anointed. So here in verse Psalm 46, we see an outworking of this reality. This psalm is referring to or reflecting upon a time of physical deliverance in the history of Israel. However, what are these warring and raging nations doing ultimately? Ultimately, by their attempt to destroy God's people, they are in full-scale, outright rebellion 
against God and his anointed king. Remember, this psalm isn't primarily about your daily struggles, your frustration at work, or the person who cheated you in a business deal, or your family members that drive you crazy. The calamities pictured here are representative of the tumult and conflict within the political and national realm, typifying mankind's rebellion against God's rule and against his anointed. Now, as we moved into the last section of this psalm here, I want to address something that I have not yet acknowledged. This psalm is probably most well-known because of one verse, or should I say part of one verse. Verse 10a. Be still and know that I am God. Now, this part of a verse is lauded in song and story upon cross-stitched pillows, mugs, wall art, Instagram bios, and Facebook posts the world over. It is a very well-known verse, and yet a very misunderstood one. Why? Well, because Psalm 46.10 is a prime example of a Bible verse used as fodder for the Xanax approach to Scripture. And even worse... It is able to be so only because it is removed from its context, stripping the verse of its meaning. You see, one of the often neglected things that, help, that context helps us to understand is tone. Tone. What tone the author takes with the words or ideas he is communicating. For example, take 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter read at hundreds of weddings, maybe even some of yours. And while there is nothing wrong with having this beautiful chapter read at your wedding, our characteristic use and sometimes abuse of this text has led to us completely misunderstanding and intention of Paul. We are unaware of the fact that 1 Corinthians 13 is actually a rebuke, a correction to a local church that doesn't understand what Christian love really is. So here we see in Psalm 4610a, What kinds of things do we associate with it normally? What do we assume the tone of be still and know that I am God is meant to be? Now, I don't know where down the line this happened, but there seems to be some kind of association or conflation between this text and the still small voice of 1 Kings 19 when God speaks to Elijah. I don't know why that is, I don't know how that happened, but there seems to be an association between the two. And that is another very abused and misunderstood text, but to which our text bears no substantial connection. But from this association, or even without it, the verse, be still and know that I am God, is understood as a whisper, conjuring up peace and serenity. God just wants me to be at peace and meditate upon him. Sometimes this can get rather new agey in its intention. But even if that is not one's intent and someone has good thoughts in mind, a whisper or a statement meant to conjure up images of serenity and tranquility is a far cry from what this verse is actually intended to communicate. Now, what do we have so far in Psalm 46? God is our refuge, and we will not fear, even though the earth is falling to pieces, mountains crumbling into the ocean, tsunamis, earthquakes, grand catastrophe. And despite all of this, God is like a river, dwelling with and protecting his people. From what? From nations and kingdoms rebelling against God's rule over the earth and against his anointed king. And now what do we come to in verses 8 and 9? 
Let's read, shall we? Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes the wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Right on a coffee mug. Here we see the Lord in action. You see, God is not just our refuge and fortress. Yahweh Sabaoth gives us cause not to fear, not just because he is a safe haven of protection, but also because he is a warrior for his people. The Lord decisively acts in the defense of his people. Verse 8 is an invitation, not to fight, but to survey the stilled battlefield. Look how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease. He destroys all their weapons and means of warfare. God makes peace on earth, not with a treaty, but because there is nobody left to fight. And it is at this point, at this point in the psalm, God speaks. But here is the error we are making when we come to verse 10. We assume that God's speech is directed at us, his people, when instead, God is not speaking to us, his people, but to the nations. Look back at verse 6. It is in response to the nations raging and kingdoms tottering that God utters his voice. So here in verse 10, he uses that earth-melting voice of his. This isn't a whisper. This isn't an invitation to peace and tranquility. This is a demand for recognition. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Sit down, be quiet. I am ruler and only sovereign of the universe. I am God and you are not. And even though God speaks to the nations, what should our response as God's people be? The command, be still and know that he is God, should call us to respond like Job, beholding the works of God, his desolations on the earth. We should repent in the dust, put our faces on the ground, put our hands over our mouths and say, woe is me, I am undone. You are God and I am not. And then, with our submission to his lordship, we can stand and say in awe and worship and gratitude, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I want to address what I imagine many of you might be thinking. Oh no, do I need to throw away my Psalm 4610 coffee mug? Do I need to hide my be still wall art? Do I need to get my favorite tattoo removed? No. No to all of those things. You don't need to throw away everything that has this verse on it. But you should know and recognize what it means and what your response to it should be. It means you can no longer come to this text with a Xanax approach, using it to just medicate your feelings. But the beautiful thing is that if you seek to understand and apply this text as intended within its context, it will, in fact, be better for you and for others. So next time this verse comes up in your life, as I'm sure it will, use it as an opportunity to humbly point others to the kind of God we need to be still and know. 
tell them that this verse reminds us that God is our fortress and a warrior that protects his people from all their enemies. Tell them that the Lord's presence with us allows us not to fear even when the nation's rebellion against God is so painfully on display. And warn them that God destroys those who seek to destroy his people. And even though we might still experience hardship, and even though we might still be afraid and anxious now, we pray that as we meditate and sing this song, that God would move this truth from our head to our hearts, and we would grow in our confidence in God as our fortress and protector. Now the image of God this psalm paints for us is one some of us want to run away from. We want to run from the fact that God in his wrath brings to ruin those who rebel against his rule, past, present, and future. This is our God. Yahweh is our warrior king who rises to the defense of his people. And it is a warning to those who think they can continue to rebel and not to submit to God's rule over the universe, including your own life. Because there is another thing we don't like to consider. God, as ruler over all things, has rightful authority over your life. He is king, not just in the abstract sense of the world, but he is king over your life. He is ruler over your life and he sets the agenda. You are accountable to him. And though you might not be aware of it, your willful disobedience against his laws and rejection of his authority over your life will lead to your ultimate ruin and desolation. You have no means to defend yourself from him and nothing to offer him that he would relent. But this text warns you that those who look to God as a refuge and fortress, they are the ones who escape his wrath and experience deliverance. God has established his king in Zion, Jesus Christ. And though Jesus came first as a suffering servant, he did so willingly in order to secure the means by which anyone who turns to the Lord in faith can receive refuge against his wrath on our rebellion. As one of my favorite theologians, Shai Lin, once famously said, this text is warning you, the Lord is a warrior, but for all who repent and believe, there's plenty more in store for you. Because there, though he came first as a suffering servant who died and rose in order that we might become the people of God, he is coming back as a conquering king. And although this psalm is a song of praise and remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel from warring nations, it bears future, future, that is eschatological anticipation. Because today, today, we do experience the opposition of the nations. We do see their rebellion against the rule of God and against his anointed. And we wait and we pray that God would strengthen us and that we would not be afraid. So as the Psalms function in our lives is to increase our longings and our affections for the truths of God, I pray that this Psalm increases your desire for Christ's coming to deliver his people. That when you are afraid, that when when you are afraid, when you fear, when you are anxious, 
not if, when. Maybe you'd sing. You'd read and reflect upon these realities, not as a magic spell to make the bad feelings go away. Because God's word is not an incantation we recite to make our problems disappear or a pill to suddenly make the symptoms of our sin sickness go away. But you would remember these truths because the truth, his truth, is the only solace and comfort we have against the tumult of this world. And it doesn't make you less of a Christian or less of a child of God to be afraid. It demonstrates that you are God's child when you run to him for the protection you need for the peace that you require. This psalm anticipates the day of the ultimate deliverance of God's people when Christ will return as our warrior king, silencing all opposition and establishing his rule on the earth. Brothers and sisters, don't be ruled by the headlines. Don't let the anxiety over the chaos in the world remove your gaze from Jesus. He is with you. He fights for you. He is your fortress. Be still and know that he is God. And before we finish today and before we conclude our time in the Psalms this summer, let's quickly recap. The book of Psalms is a royal hymn book that instructs us in the law of the Lord and tells us of his anointed king by working to move the truth of God from our head to our hearts. That we would not just know the truth, but love and treasure it also. Psalm 46 does just that as it is an affirmation of faith that God is a refuge, a fortress for his covenant people. He is our remedy for fear in the midst of a tumultuous world. Not just in general hardships, but specifically amidst the nation's rebellion against God and his anointed king. But God is not just our safe haven. The Lord is a warrior who fights for his people and makes peace on the earth by defeating his enemies. And while this psalm reflects upon a time of deliverance for Israel, it anticipates the ultimate deliverance of God's people when our warrior King Jesus will silence all opposition and establish his rule on the earth. Amen. Lord, we thank you that we can rest in these truths, that there is real and true peace to be found in them. And Lord, I'm grateful that your word is not just to fix to our problems. It's not here to just address our felt needs. Because we don't know what we need. We don't know what we need to feel. We don't know what we need to do. And we need you. We need our Father to come alongside his children and to help us understand and to love and to know. To know that he is indeed our fortress. Lord, that you, we pray that you would prove yourself again to us as a safe haven of protection for your people. I pray that we would seek to sing the psalms and study them anew with greater joy, greater love for you. Father, that you would drive this fact into our hearts and that when we, when we are afraid, when we are anxious, that we would not look to other things to medicate our sorrow and our fear, but that we would look to you and that we would look to Christ as he is soon to return. And Lord, we long for that day. 
Come, Lord Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.